Welcome back to the vir- virtual Highbury uh, for another diachronic forwards backwards podcast. As always, tip your by bartenders. I have via Venmo at Joe-Cats-16 or tipyourserver.org slash MSN. Peter, how do you spell horse? <laughs> if you're Tamika Catchings, you only get to H, I think. You get all the way. <laughs> but uh, normally, H-O-R-S-E. I also want to um, give a shout out to Highbury patron Chris Engel. He won uh, the trivia contest uh, for the Highbury last week, uh, an online trivia uh, contest which raises money uh, for the unemployed bartenders. It was a $100 prize, and Chris Engel, God bless his heart, uh, donated it back in a creative way. He uh, told the Highbury, instead of giving me a hundred bucks, put a hundred bucks in your um, pull tab machine, pull out a hundred dollars worth of pull tabs and whatever prize money comes to that, I'll donate to uh, the bartenders. So far they've gone through 40 of the pull tabs and I think they're up to about 20 bucks. So they may have been better off just taking the hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to learn a little secret about those pull tabs. Uh, they may not be above board. Do you mean gambling doesn't pay off? Shocking. It, it's not recommended. Uh, as always, I'm, I'm, I'm joined by the Phineas to my Ferb, uh, Dan Fallon. Uh, Dan was Alexi Lawless's comment that capos and sound editors splicing in the sound being the same thing, the dumbest thing you've ever heard or merely the second dumbest thing you've ever heard? Um, oh, my God. Um, that was another moment where I thought I might need to get off of Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he, I, if, if, if Twitter was personified as one human being, it might be Alexi Lawless. I mean, um, someone who has parlayed limited talent into just making people angry all over the planet. Um, yeah, I mean, that was about, I'd say, I'm not going to say the stupidest thing because our, our president is, I mean, that's every moment. So um, I'll go second stupidest thing. And also um, he is firmly ensconced now as number one enemy of pod. Would we, would we have him on? Oh, no, 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 no. Because the problem is you, you, you can't keep giving people like that a platform. And that's the problem with him is that people, he does that because he knows everyone. He knows we're talking about it. He knows them. We'll try to get him on the pod and engage him in some sort of a discussion about it. Um, when all he wants to do is fire people up and um, which is why he works for Fox. So um, he's, he's perfectly suited to their, their brand of, I'm doing air quotes, journalism. Yeah, this um, isn't, this is a podcast, so it's not a, a visual <laughs> medium. So thank you so, for that. Yeah. Well, no, not to I don't name think... drop, but I was talking to Paul, Paul Calajuri today, and double name drop, and he was uh, sharing an Alexi Lalas story with me uh, from the 1994 era. And it was in context with their lead up to the World Cup and their tours around the United States playing games. And he said, uh, inevitably, we would have our pregame meals at these Irish bars and we would walk in and it would be set up with the table in a U and a bar stool at the front of it. And TV cameras would come in and 
they would put Alexi at the head to and, and give him a guitar and have him perform for the cameras. And I'm sure he did. I'm sure he was like, oh, no, 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 please, please. Not not now, guys. I, I'm mentally preparing for the for Columbia tomorrow. I, I can't do this. Uh, you know, I actually owned my parents gave me as a Christmas gift his uh, solo album. I believe it was called Kicking Balls. And uh, can't can't uh, can't recommend it. Can't recommend it. Well, uh, that voice here. That, I have that to have second, a good relationship with Alexi, so um, I don't want to throw him under the bus. <laughs> we'll, we'll do that for you. We'll do that for our, our guest. Uh, as always, on Thursdays, we chat uh, about sort of the history of U.S. soccer with the Ted Kaczynski, Willy Wonka, Che Guevara, Johnny Appleseed, and Mr. Peabody of American soccer, Peter Wilt. I am the Sherman to Peter Wilt's Mr. Peabody, by the way. Uh, we've we've done the visual comparisons and it's it's dead on a dead ringer. Yeah, it's Purple. it's really sort of shocking. Uh, by the way, uh, what else did you learn from Pal- Paul Caligiuri today? Talking, so, he called you up out of the blue, huh? Or did he listen yeah. to the podcast? <laughs> that must have been it. Yeah, I, haven't, I mean, I know Paul a little bit, uh, but it was uh, it, it was very good to hear from him. We hadn't spoken in a while. Uh, and we chatted for a good 90 minutes. It, it was a long, uh, I'll say, conversation. Was there a halftime break in there, an interval? <laughs> <laughs> there should have been. Or if there was, it was just me now talking for 15 minutes, and maybe Paul didn't realize that I had taken my break. Um, but it, it was a fine conversation, and uh, you know, he was telling some stories of the old days, which I, I – you know, enjoy hearing is, you know, as a fan of that, that, that team from 90 and 94. And one of the more remarkable things and just the way coincidences work, I think last week on the show, we were talking about Paul and, and his famous 1989 goal that got us into the 1990 world cup. And then, so for him to call me was a bit of a coincidence. Maybe he was listening to the podcast. I bet that's what it was. That I hear we're, we're quite popular in the Paul Caligiuri household. The Harks household, less so. <laughs> Caligiuri household, very popular. I thought, I'm pretty sure my joke got edited out, so John Harks should still like us. I believe, <laughs> we, I think we I believe in episode in. one or two. The but but then uh, Optoli slid one in later. Ah, yes. That is right. That is right. Every week it's a challenge to... Uh, keep John on board with uh, his <laughs> fandom of the show. But then, so uh, another coincidence, yesterday as I'm cleaning out my basement, I came across th- this pair of autographs uh, that I had thought had been lost for decades and decades that my brother and I got at a Chicago Blackhawks game in the 60s of Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo, made famous in the movie Brian's Song. Uh, Brian Piccolo, of, of course, passed away of, of cancer uh, at a very young age when he was still with the Chicago Bears, and that's what the movie uh, was about. Uh, and so these autographs were rare. Well, Piccolo's more so than Sayers, because then Gail Sayers is still signing autographs. <laughs> but I had apparently lost uh, the Piccolo-Sayers autographs, and then yesterday I found them during my clean out of the basement and I told my brother and he was thrilled. And then today, as I'm talking to Paul Caligiuri, he matter of factly mentions that 
he was in Chicago one time because we're talking about Chicago things, but he came to Chicago in the early 90s to receive the Brian Piccolo Award from the Italian American Sports Hall of Fame, which was just remarkable that that coincidence should happen. And, uh, and I would say Brian Song. Soccer, and I watched Soccer Town USA last night, which features Paul Calagiri as a, as a, I would say, a ancillary character to what the, what the uh, documentary is about. Um, there's a lot of weird connections going on here. I just there want to are, note yeah. that Brian's song as a movie is probably responsible for more, making more men cry in the 1970s than any other phenomenon in the 1970s. Wouldn't <laughs> you say? What would be the runner up? Uh, uh, you know, the, probably the death of a parent. <laughs> I would say dark. <laughs> I would say Brian's song actually caused more men to cry than, than like actual real life death. It's like after my, one of my dad's best friends died maybe five or uh, probably longer than that ago, we spent more time talking about his car that had died simultaneous (laughs) to that uh, than the actual death of his friend. So I just, I think this is how men process emotions. I think field of dreams would be the eighties equivalent of, uh, of Brian's song. I remember being in the theater with my father and looking over and being like, well, that's strange. Why is he crying? (laughs) (laughs) It's a, it's a little dusty in here. Remember when we used to go out to watch movies, by the way, gosh, that was in public, right? Yeah. With other people. There were people there and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, to speak of, by the way, uh, things that make us cry, I do want to take one brief moment and uh, friend of the pod, Dave, uh, his, his uh, dog, unfortunately they had to put it down and our beloved leader, uh, Chairman Schmidt had to put uh, the wonderful Artie down. And so we want to send our condolences. Also want to let all of our listeners know that Paisley and I had a long talk and Paisley agreed that uh, she will not die. So we're fine there. Uh, she's going to be around for a very long time. Paisley also features in uh, a story that I, I promised Dr. Depeche Navasaria, who said some kind things about us on Twitter uh, that I would tell today. And it involved me. Uh, Dan, you may remember this. What am I doing uh, now that I'm quarantined in terms of home improvement projects? Painting. Painting your paints. I am painting my walls. I'm also, and, and you know, those of you watching on the simulcast can see me point <laughs> to uh, the, the uh, light fixture behind me, which I installed this weekend. Unfortunately, it came without hex nuts, which you needed I've because... Case, I've had a case of hex nuts. You're better off without it. <laughs> Took some antibiotics and cleared it right up. <laughs> some uh, chloroquine or whatever it's called, I think. <laughs> You got to mix it with the hydroquil and boom, <laughs> everything's fine. It kills everything. Uh, and so Quarantine I, over. <laughs> that's, that's the problem with America. It's not the COVID. We've all got a bad case of the hex nuts. <laughs> Peter, Peter is going to just walk away at some point. We're, we're trying to alienate listeners and guests every time. Uh, and so, I make the I call up my parents because I know my my grandfather was a great word worker and had all of these, you know, bits and pieces. And I measure the the screw and I say, Dad, do you have any, you know, properly sized hex nuts for <laughs> <laughs> for for this? And he says, he says, Yeah, it goes down in the basement, digs them out. He said, You know, I'll put them out. We'll 
you know, stop by, pick them up. We'll appropriately socially distance and, and, you know, you can say hello and grab them. One question. How long did it take him to dig them out? Not very long because my grandfather, (laughs) (laughs) it didn't, it did not take him that long to dig out his hex nuts. This is amazing. This is the best pot we've ever done. <laughs> so I, I go over to the house to, to get, what do I go to get, Dan? Hex nuts. Hex nuts, properly sized for the light fixture. Uh, that, uh, that very, very quickly dug out by your dad. And yeah, dug, you. d- dug out. No, we didn't hand them off. Okay. It was a contact-free hex nut delivery. <laughs> <laughs> And so I I go over there. I'm grabbing the grabbing the hex nuts. Two of them, two hex nuts, for those of you playing at home. And Paisley likes to uh, likes to ride in the car, so Paisley came with me. She came over, and of course, Paisley, being Paisley, went up to my dad to uh, you know get petted by him. And my dad's petting him, and and this leads to oh, my mom pointing out that you shouldn't be petting animals because, you know, and my dad goes, no, 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 they don't carry the virus. And I said, yeah, that's the interesting thing. The animals themselves don't carry it, but, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, and so we're having a standard Ponywise argument, which is three people, five opinions, right? And we're, <laughs> we're kind of going back and forth. And finally, you know, my mom said, no, no, I just read an article this morning uh, in, the, in the paper and, you know, we're, we're arguing, and, and then all of a sudden she goes, it was by the flamingo doctor. And we all stand back and go, oh, okay, it's fine. Uh, absolutely right. We shouldn't be petting dogs, you know. <laughs> and that was, of course, Dr. Depeche Nevisaria, the flamingo doctor, as he's now known in the Ponywa's household. So lots of honors. The guy's got a lot of letters after his name. I think really, though, the, the pinnacle is being the flamingo doctor. Um, and being and being apparently the the unofficial sage of the Ponywas family, uh, you know, if you can end an argument in in Ponywas household, that's something that you should be quite proud of uh, because he's the, uh, he's the Doctor Fauci of the Ponywas. <laughs> <laughs> because we are a stubborn, stubborn bunch, I would say. Uh, you know, generally as a rule, I, I thought of and, and Peter, you'll probably appreciate this res- this uh, reference uh, of. Alice's restaurant when when he says he goes in and he sits on the on the bench and they say what are you in here for and he and he says uh you know littering and they all moved away from me and then I thought of the the the, you know the following line where he says and creating a nuisance and they all moved back and we were the best of buddies and you know that was that was Dr. Dr. Flamingo brought the whole family back together so there you go. And Keith, thank you. We want to say uh, congratulations to all to zero of our Arlo Guthrie fans out there who got that reference. Oh, we don't. You don't think we have any Arlo Guthrie listeners? <laughs> Dozens. <laughs> I, I was sort of shocked at how many you know because I'm doing this Europe 1972 Grateful Dead couch tour. Uh, how many of our listeners uh, are Grateful Dead fans? And Arlo Guthrie was. I read about him again recently because Peter Jest the owner of Shank Hall in Milwaukee was the, I'll say, regional promoter for John Prine. Whenever Prine would tour Minnesota, Wisconsin, the UP, he used Peter Jest as his promoter. And the other artist that Peter Jest promoted in a similar way was Arlo Guthrie. There you go. 
who doesn't enjoy a little Arlo? Uh, so, Peter, la- last time, by the way, we had a little bit of a conflict on the soccer front because you thought I was perhaps criticizing the 1990 U.S. World Cup team. And uh, I was not actually criticizing the, the world. I re-listened to the pod. I'm the one person. You know, I put the work in. Um, and uh, what, I, what I realized is we had a misunderstanding because I was criticizing the standard of play in general in the 1990 World Cup. I think, you know, if you look at it game by game, it may have led, it, it had the lowest score and it had a tremendous number of uh, yellow cards. And so they put in, uh, a number of, of things uh, in order to kind of clean up the game in the 1990s, including the back pass rule, which among the changes in the rules in what we're seeing in the modern game, I think is probably one of the biggest. Perhaps the low scoring was an homage to the host country. It was played in Italy after all. <laughs> Peter took the words right out of my mouth. I said they just wanted Italy to feel like they were respectful. <laughs> know what happens with Italians when you don't show proper respect. <laughs> uh, can we go back to talking about hex nuts? <laughs> By the way, Paul Caligiuri and I bonded over our mutual Italian heritage. His is somewhat well-known because his last name is very Italian. And uh, apparently his father uh, was born in Racine, Wisconsin. He has a Wisconsin connection. Wow. His grandparents had immigrated uh, to Racine in perhaps the 1920s. And his father um, spent his first six years there before uh, moving uh, to Montebello, California. Paul says because uh, probably they moved there because it sounded Italian. And they were probably <laughs> much disappointed to find out it wasn't once they got there. And uh, I shared with him that on my mother's side, I'm Italian. And um, our heritage both comes from the south of Italy in the uh, Calabria region, which and, and no one really cares about. Related to our, our more general purview, if you follow uh, Bob Gansler uh, on the Twitter machine, uh, he posts quite a bit about one of the big early American soccer teams in Wisconsin was the Racine Horlicks, um, who were a great uh, you know power of, of men's soccer in the 1920s and 1930s because of that kind of immigrant community. Racine Horlicks was also, I believe, an NFL team for a couple of years. Uh, Racine Horlicks was a business in Racine that may have been a malt company or yeast company, something like that, or a milk company, I don't know. Uh, But they sponsored the soccer team as well as a a professional football team. Just going on the Google machine, they were like a Spanish athletic club. Horlicks uh, produced hex nuts, so there you go. But, uh, but I, as I said earlier, though, I did, you know, mentioning Paul and mentioning all these these teams, I you know, I watched the uh, at the recommendation of my two esteemed uh, podcast friends here, the Soccer Town documentary on YouTube, which I would highly recommend to everybody out there. Um, and, you know, again, I was left with that impression of we were told we don't have a history in this country of soccer. We know that's not true from the early 1900s when immigrants were coming over here and playing, but that history kind of gets lost. But then you, you, there, there are pockets, Milwaukee, St. Louis, Kearney, New Jersey in this case. But, um, you know, I think that story in, in the movie really resonated with me about, um, you know, immigrant parents bringing that passion here and hearing these kids going into a, 
a bar in the early 1980s in the United States and watching soccer and playing darts and games being on and that the biggest sport in Kearney, New Jersey was soccer was, was, uh, you know, that reminder again, that there are, I think Peter said it last time, um, you know, we jokingly call you the, the Johnny Appleseed, but there have been people in this country who have been grooming and, and nurturing the game uh, at the grassroots level for, for a century. Um, and I came away with a ton of respect for the people of Kearney, New Jersey and the parents that, you know, churned out these three players, but also, you know, kept alive uh, um, a, a love of soccer that I think now is kind of m- much more widespread. And uh, so kind of speaking to that and the, the people that kind of grew the game, you know, the 1994 team was coached by Boro, uh, Boro Milosevic, um, because the, the U.S. team wanted to get success, and that guy had had great success, I think, with Mexico before that, Costa Rica in 1990, and had managed a number of teams and kind of got them through. But uh, the, the, the sort of next step, and that, that's producer Paisley assuring us she will not die. Uh, the, the, the sort of next step became in, in 98, and it was a catastrophic, catastrophic performance uh, for the U.S. They hired an American coach, Steve Sampson, who had been Bora's assistant, but in 1998, Peter, you brought forth one of the, the next waves of American soccer by hiring Bob Bradley, right, at the, at the Chicago Fire. Yeah, I gave him his first head coaching job as a professional. He'd been coaching many years, uh, amateur teams, collegiate teams, uh, Princeton most notably. And today, uh, I mean, I knew he had started his coaching career at Ohio University. Uh, he went there to get a sports management degree, which at the time was the only master's program in sports, uh, uh, sports management in, in the, the country. And uh, today, uh, Rick Laws, the former PR director of DC United, tweeted a picture of Bob Bradley coaching for Ohio University at a Nippert Stadium at University of Cincinnati. And it was amazing, first of all, to see Bob with all that 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 hair on his head <laughs> yeah um but yeah but the scowl there. was still there you could still oh yeah you could definitely tell he was yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> uh he was there 81 to 83 uh he also was an assistant to bruce arena both in college at university of virginia and then at dc united which is where i met him and uh recruit it's funny i ended up recruiting him uh, to be the fire's first head coach more so than the other way around and, and what was it about Bob that you that you really were interested in, Peter? What kind of what you know, having watched him coach or got to know him, and it was getting to know him. I, I'm embarrassed to say I barely knew uh, of his background at the time. Um, Ron Waxman, uh, a player representative uh, who's you know become very close to both Bob and myself, um, recommended Bob uh, to me, and so when I was doing my my tour of MLS teams to get best practices and worst practices. When I visited DC United, um, I asked uh, to meet with Bob and and talk to him about our head coaching position. Um, Kevin Payne um, said, I'm sure that'll be fine. Let me ask Bruce. And and Bruce uh, said it was okay. Uh, When I got out there, Kevin introduced me to Bruce who he and I had, had met uh, occasionally before I remembered Bruce, Bruce, had no idea who I was. And uh, Kevin says, this is Peter Wilt from, from Chicago. 
the new Chicago team. He says, Chicago, eh? It'll never work. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it made me a little bit happy the following October when we beat DC United in MLS Cup. <laughs> um, but I, I, I took Bob to a real fancy restaurant uh, not far from Redskin Park where uh, they trained, the old Washington Redskins uh, training facility. I think it was, it was probably a Bennigan's or a Hooligan's <laughs> or, or some other <laughs> TGI Fridays. Lawless had performed at on his <laughs> worldwide U.S. soccer tour. And Bob ended up asking me more questions than I asked him. And they were really good questions. And they really centered on would we be able to provide a professional environment where the team could come and work and make it their own. In the early days of MLS, a lot of teams were actually – using shared training facilities. I remember going down to Dallas to the, on my tour to visit the Dallas Burn, and their training facility was a shared field with a high school team, and they used uh, double-wide trailers as their, uh, the team offices and showers. And that was more the norm than having dedicated space. And Bob recognized how important having that dedicated space was uh, and, you know, coincidentally, we ended up getting him and that first year fire team a training facility really similar to what he had in D.C. United. It was actually Hallis Hall, which was a Chicago Bears former training facility, which when it was built was patterned after Redskin Park. So uh, that um, pleased him very much to know that that was where we anticipated our training was going to be. Uh, he had been turned down for job openings in MLS before, most notably with the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars, which I think hurt. I mean, that was his hometown. He was from yeah. New Jersey. And and maybe the not getting it the first time, he fair enough. Um, but the second time, I think, wasn't right. And I believe there's a third time that they passed over him. And so I was just fortunate that he was still available in 19, well, 1997 was when he was actually hired. And so where did, uh, you know, Bob's ideas about kind of professionalism and, and training come from? Did they come from Bruce and what he had seen? Or was he already, you know, one of the things that he's kind of paved the way for other managers is he's, he's gone, he went abroad very quickly, you know, after his, his U.S. career. Um, was he already, you know, making trips and, and looking at things elsewhere or was it just his innate kind of sense of things? I think it's all of that, but certainly uh, the experience with DC United from their startup in 95 for the 96 season and the 97 season, then uh, he recognized the importance of the little things. And, uh, you know, Bruce was in, in some ways a mentor, uh, but it was also very much a collaboration uh, those two were very close, are very close. Um, another one, Mooch Myronek. Uh, the three of them worked together on the U.S. Olympic um, coaching staff. Uh, in probably, what year would that have been? 94? No, 90. No, so 92, 96 would have been Atlanta? Probably 96 yeah, in Atlanta? that was it. But uh, th those three were, were very close, and um, they, they all – you know, they came from the coaching tree of um, uh, the, the Seton Hall coach, 
Man Manfred uh, Shellshite. Sorry, I uh, passed on his name for a second, but Manny Shellshite is a legend in coaching circles. And, you know, we all think of the Bruce Arena coaching tree or the Bob Bradley coaching tree, and they're enormous, impactful, and have great coaches underneath them. But those guys all lead up to Manny Shellshite. And Manfred uh, was one of the great ones. And, and so with, with getting things started then, uh, was, was Bob Bradley sort of your first hire uh, in terms of putting the, the product <laughs> on the field together? Or was it? Uh, uh, yes and no. Um, so a few days before, or I guess after I was announced as the team's first general manager, I got a call from Sunil Galati uh, letting me know that, uh, he had this guy under contract and nowhere to put him. Uh, it was Dennis Hamlet. Dennis was a player in MLS the first couple years, uh, the first year with the Colorado Rapids. And then he, he suffered um, a, a stroke, a miniature stroke uh, that disabled him, made him unable to play. And he had to retire in 1997. He was still under contract to MLS uh, and so Sunil was looking for a place to put him. He said, I'm not telling you you have to hire him, but if you want, you can, he can come and help you out, kind of be an extra pair of hands. And um, he's on a contract till the end of 97. So I brought in Dennis, and uh, it was a very small staff at that point. It was just uh, Dennis and myself. And then uh, soon after, Allison Holmstrom uh, came in. She had been Doug Logan's executive assistant. Uh, Doug uh, said to me one day, I'm going to give you the best present you've ever had. And I was looking for a big box behind his desk or something. <laughs> um, it was his executive assistant. Uh, and he was right. You know, Allison was remarkable. And and she organized so much in that first year for the Chicago Fire and is one of the unsung heroes of the team, as is Dennis. So uh, Dennis did some scouting for me. Uh, he did some sales, did appearances. Uh, and then when I hired Bob, I told him that, you know, Dennis was working with me. Uh, he's on board. He's been doing some scouting. Uh, he's available to you. I'm not telling you you have to hire him as an assistant coach. I would never tell the head coach who they have to hire as an assistant. But I said, uh, if um, you get to know him, you like him, respect him, you want him, uh, we can hire him after his contract with MLS runs out at the end of 1997. And lo and behold, they did get along, respected each other. Uh, Bob hired Dennis as an assistant coach for that uh, first season. And Dennis actually ended up staying on um, perhaps longer than any other technical staff person that was hired during my tenure. And he left uh, after what, 2007, 2008? Uh, he was there for fully 10 years, right? As, as sort of head coach uh, at the end? Maybe even that longer. Sounds about right. Two thousand eight, yeah, maybe two thousand nine or so, somewhere in there. Yeah, um, he made it to the Eastern Conference Finals two straight years, and um, was let go, which I, I still don't understand why. Uh, he had, uh, I thought, very good success, and the team, frankly, hasn't reached reached those levels since Dennis left. What uh, what was responsible for basically the best season in expansion history, unless you can identify, like, I know you know a lot of sports history. I've seen the pile of 
uh, clippings from the Chicago Tribune where you get mentioned for winning these sports trivia. So maybe you can point out like in 1967, there was an ABA team that had a better expansion season. But I would say that first Chicago Fire season was probably the most successful expansion team ever. What was what was responsible for? Was it Bob? Was it uh, just kind of a magic alchemy? What what happened? Magic Alchemy. That would be a great band name, by the way. <laughs> so what, Hex Nuts? <laughs> <laughs> no, it would be Hex, be Hex and the Nuts. I think... <laughs> I'm starting to think about CONCACAF qualifying now. <laughs> the Hex Nuts. I try not to think yeah. about ever. <laughs> well, the, the 98 team was successful. Not only... Did we win MLS Cup? We also won the U.S. Open Cup, so we won the double that year. Uh, and I, yeah, I used to tell people, or we used to promote, that we're the first professional soccer team ever to win the championship in our first year, um, which isn't true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> didn't stop us from saying that. Uh, and and there's, there was one that I know of before that that won as an expansion team and one that has won the championship since then. The one beforehand, I believe, was NASL Philadelphia. I don't know if it was the Freedom, probably the Freedom. Uh, Bob Rigby, I think, may have been their star player. And I think they won the NASL championship, perhaps, or maybe it's MISL as an expansion team. And then I was just reading uh, Jeff Reuter's really good recap of one and done. One spelled W-O-N and done the story of the 2017 San Francisco Deltas. They won the NESL championship in their expansion year and then folded two days later. <laughs> American to answer soccer. your question. That is American soccer in a nutshell. To answer your question though, uh, Keith, it, it was... It was a number of things, but uh, we brought in some really talented players, no doubt about it. The, the um, Eastern Bloc, Peter Novak, Jerzy Podrozny, and Roman Kaseski from Poland, and Lubos Kubik from the Czech Republic were not only really talented players, but their work rate, their dedication, their mindset set the fire apart, I think, from any other team in the league. And then the young talent we had, you know, guys like uh, C.J. Brown, who was a rookie, you know, Chris Armas, Ante Razov, Jesse Marsh. Uh, I mean, Diego Gutierrez, Francis Acaro wasn't a young player, but uh, his veteran presence obviously helped. So we we're very talented. But it was the, the chemistry and the environment around the team that made that team special. I think Bob should get most of the credit for that. Uh, he's got a way of creating an us versus them mentality and the us as a people and uh, he'll create or identify maybe it's a better term uh, common enemy outside of those walls and it helps bond that team together uh, the fans are also a big part of that first year's success uh, the passion of uh, the barn burners the fire ultras uh, the arsonists I mean the uh, certainly the supporters groups but the fans in general I mean, when the players went around town, they were recognized and they felt uh, respected that this was uh, an important team in an important sports city that cared about them. Um, in general, the media was pretty respectful of us for the sport of soccer at that time. 
so it, it was a, a special feeling. And uh, I, I don't want to say team of destiny um, because during the regular season, we did go through, I think it was an 11-game uh, winning streak, not even undefeated. It was a winning streak because there were no draws because draws at the end of regulation were settled with shootouts and we happened to win any of the shootouts during that period. So the team did get on a hot streak, but we didn't win uh, the supporters shield. Uh, but there were signs that, you know, this was a, a team that was going to win it all. Uh, uh, Dan, you know, jump in at any point, but I, I did have a question about sort of Bob Bradley working with these experienced Eastern European guys. I mean, you know, one of the re- the theories about why he struggled at, at Swansea was, you know, he came in and he was an American trying to get, you know, these English guys to, you know, listen to them and they just don't have that kind of built-in respect for Americans. Is that something he struggled with, with those guys in, in Eastern Europe, uh, those Eastern European guys, or did he just kind of blow right past it and how did he do so? Or do you just think it yeah, didn't not matter at all. as much? Not, not at all. And I think that's very overstated for his experience at Swansea. I mean, he'd, he would managed in Europe for a long time, actually before that. Um, I'm, you know, I don't agree with it. Uh, I'm just, you know, kind of, I think that by way of background to the question, how's that? Yeah, I I think that feeling that he struggled, uh, because he was an American is more a relationship with the fans than it is with the the players he had. And it was also, as it turned out, uh, an issue for ownership, which is a real shame, um, because they caved to the pressure of the fans. But so we've never had any any as a reminder early on. Wait, 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 wait. And as a reminder, I mean, Swansea was, I mean, he took over a club that was in uh, really, really bad shape, um, where they were kind of cycling through managers. And I think you know, I give Bob a lot of credit for that because I think he took the opportunity that was available to him um, because he wanted to try and prove himself. And I think that was going to be a tough spot for anybody to be in. Um, and he, had, he, he's proven, you know, his time was in Norway. And then, I mean, what he did with the Egyptian national team was incredible. And in um, France. Yeah. Yeah. Again, well there. I am, I'm not saying that this is an no, accurate I, point. I'm not, these are not directed at you, Mr. Paniwaz. This is directed at uh, those out there in the, in the Twitter sphere. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's it's my standard hatred of of coaches with British accents. I think that's what it comes down to. Um, and you know, they're gonna a they're fair gonna, position. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna roll out the four four two. And if you're not on board with the four four two, you know, uh, but but I do think you know the reputation. We've seen more and more American players break into Europe, and you know, there's some question. And now Jesse Marsh is, you know, the the next uh, you know kind of. Uh, Runner, and we'll we'll offer a little plug about uh, coffee with the Mingos because Jesse Marsh, thanks to uh, Daryl Shore, who you met via the Chicago Fire, uh, is going to be appearing on Coffee with the Mingos along with Eric Winalda, another of your Fire players, um, to to kind of talk about soccer in the United States. But you know, Bob Bradley was a big breakthrough, even in you know Norway. Getting to Norway was a big you know deal, and that's not a top five league, and so you wonder, you know, Jesse Marsh is there and what's the, you know, because I think one of the things the United States needs is to upgrade its, its coaching at the, the youth level and you got to go to where the best are. Yeah. Those barriers are still being broken down just like they've 
it took a while for playing barriers to be broken down in Europe. And now the, the barriers for players are totally, I think, maybe not totally, but, but largely gone for American players after the success of, of so many uh, players. But it was the John Harks, um, the Casey Kellers, and uh, Brad Friedels, Jurgen Summers, and not just the goalkeepers, uh, Eric Winaldas, um, that, that, that broke those barriers uh, in, in the 80s, 90s, and, and early 2000s. And, and now the same thing is going to be happening for coaches, for American coaches, and uh, Jesse Marsh is certainly leading that charge as we speak. Uh, how did how did uh, Coach Shore come into the the you know orbit of uh, of the Chicago Fire there after that you know brilliant addition, first season? In addition to um, uh, Dennis Hamlet being an assistant coach, uh, Bob uh, wanted a, another assistant coach, and he. Um, he, he auditioned, I guess is the best word, uh, several candidates. He, he brought them in to preseason training uh, and then ended up selecting Mike Jeffries to be uh, his, his first assistant with the team. Uh, Mike had been a successful uh, player at Duke University and uh, head coach. Actually went on to play professionally as well with the Minnesota Strikers indoors. And then uh, he was a head coach with the New Orleans, I want to say, I was going to say Zephyrs, but that's a baseball team. And Daryl will kill me for not remembering the name. The Riverboat Gamblers? Yeah, bingo. Thank you, Dan. Winner, winner. So Mike was the head coach of the Riverboat Gamblers in New Orleans, and, uh, and Bob hired him to be his top assistant. And the second year, we needed a um, goalkeeper coach, and uh, Daryl had been a goalkeeper for Mike Jeffries in New Orleans, and then a, an assistant coach and goalkeeper uh, for Mike. And then when Mike left to go to Chicago, Daryl took over as the head coach of the Riverboat Gamblers. And uh, um, Mike ended up recommending him to Bob. And uh, that's where that marriage occurred. And uh, did, and did Darryl- good news, wait, and good news for Daryl Shore today, uh, in addition to our state being shut down until May 26th, golf courses will be reopening next week. So not only will uh, Senior Paniwaz be very excited, I'm sure uh, Coach Shore will be out in the links uh, yeah. taking, uh, taking his dog on fewer walks as he... L- let me tell you, next time I call over to the Paniwaz house for hex nuts, he ain't going to be there. So, um, <laughs> you know, there, there may be a, a hex nut shortage at, at this Paniwaz household. Uh, one of the, the sort of... Uh, things uh, uh about daryl is he he really grew into that position and, and admits that he learned a lot from bob and and is that one of the kind of underrated skills of, of folks like bob and, and bruce is their ability to kind of cultivate uh yeah. coaches that they worked with how did they develop these big yeah, huge absolutely. coaching trees i think the the best part of bob and bruce as a teacher is that their strength is creating a good culture within um, within the team. And that's something that needs to be experienced, I think, to learn. And uh, all of these other coaches, including Daryl, learned it by experiencing it. And so, you know, Daryl grew into a great coach uh, very much because of that. 
certainly the X's and O's um, is important, uh, but more so I think is being able to create a positive culture with a team, with a group of individuals, being able to bring them together as a unit, a collective unit to work hard for each other. And uh, Daryl's done a great job of that. He did that in Chicago as he moved from being a goalkeeper coach uh, to an assistant coach that did goalkeeping coaching uh, and then becoming an assistant coach um, elsewhere, including uh, Rail Salt Lake, and then going on to be a head coach uh, in lower division soccer, as well as his short time as uh, the head coach with Rail Salt Lake. Uh- now, before we turn to your basement, uh, Dan, um, I can't believe this didn't come up from you. Uh, speaking of goalkeeper coaches, uh, circulating on the Twitter was a, a uh, picture of uh, or a, a short clip of Jorge Campos, who came into a match, scored a goal with a uh, you know rainbow over the guy's head, and was with, your time overlapped with Jorge's, did it not, at, at Chicago? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I traded for him. And was he the most athletic, uh, you know, kind of, could could a team, could you beat a team of 11 Jorge Composes? <laughs> <laughs> Jorge was an amazing individual. He, on the field, one of the most colorful players I've, I've ever been around, um, both in his actual garb, his uniform uh, was very colorful, but just the way uh, – he handled himself on the field because he was a forward as well as being a goalkeeper. He played both positions for us. He wore number nine, in fact, in goal, right? Yeah. So he wouldn't <laughs> look that odd if he went to the uh, to midfield, which he often did. Um, it, it's fine. When I traded for him, everyone celebrated that we had acquired Jorge Campos, the most arguably the most popular uh, player in Mexican football history. Uh, but the trade was really for Chris Armas, uh, who was maybe perceived as a throw-in in the deal. Uh, we'd been trying to secure Chris Armas since um, Bob was hired. Bob told me, we have to get Chris Armas on this team. And we did the expansion draft where I think we got 10 players, uh, two of them from the LA Galaxy. It was Kevin Hartman, the goalkeeper, and Danny Pena, the defender. They both uh, let me know that day that they had no interest whatsoever in relocating from (laughs) the LA Galaxy to this new expansion outfit in Chicago. Uh, Kevin was great. Uh, He called me, explained that he'd prefer to stay in LA. He didn't make a big deal out of it, but just said his preference was not to, to relocate. And I thanked him for his honesty, and I said, we'll see what we can do. Danny, on the other hand, got all panicky and was almost blubbering to me saying he couldn't leave L.A. And I, I said, well, why not? Why, why can't you move from L.A.? He said, well, it's, it's, uh, it's my dog. I've got a dog and I, I can't leave L.A. I said, good news, Danny. Chicago now allows dogs. <laughs> he says, but it's a big dog, a really big dog. So, well, I'll see what we can do. Uh, so, I mean, we, you don't want players on your team who don't want to be there. So we, we talked to LA, uh, their general manager at the time was Danny Villanueva, 
son of the former LA Rams punter, Danny Villanueva Sr. And, you know, Bob told me he doesn't care as long as Chris Armas is in the deal. And I probably talked to Danny, uh, not exaggerating, uh, three dozen times uh, over the next uh, couple of months trying to get that deal done. Finally, in, I want to say it was in January, he called me and he said, okay, something's come up here and you can have Chris Armas, but you have to take Jorge Campos too. <laughs> <laughs> so Jorge was actually kind of the throw in. The, the make uh, way. <laughs> <laughs> to getting Chris Armas. And um, why did Jorge want out? I don't think Jorge wanted out. I think uh, they uh, wanted Carlos Hermosillo. Uh, they saw that they uh, had an opportunity to get Hermosillo, but they had to open up an international slot. They had to open up some uh, salary Money. room. Yeah. And the way to do it was uh, to trade Jorge. Uh, the other question behind the scenes, Jorge Campos could not have been any taller than five foot four inches tall. <laughs> not much taller than that he was yeah. i mean um he he was on the uh the john bush side uh things the nick romando side of things uh all Darryl, the, the daryl shore side of things indeed the keith <laughs> ponywise side of things goalkeepers yeah yeah <laughs> you know the the keith ponywise side of things we, we don't mention our own playing career but let's just say i was listed at a, at a very generous 511 in the program oh my gosh <laughs> That's some fuzzy math. In your stiletto? I was standing on a pile of hex nuts. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. This is the only episode we're going to do any hex nut jokes, and then it's it's done from here. But uh, Peter, what's going on in the basement? You told me before we went live that you're up to forty percent. I think we are. I think it's moving along um, much more quickly. Uh, we only have one uh, big garbage barrel um, that we can put things in, and they only pick up uh, our garbage once a week. So I, I can't throw out more than one garbage barrel of junk a week. So I try to pace myself. And it's probably at a percentage of I'm keeping three quarters to 80% of it and throwing out a quarter of it. Um, came across some great old memorabilia uh, from you know my childhood, uh, an eight by ten glossy of Joe Pepitone. Dan, do you remember Joe Pepitone? I sure do remember Joe Pepitone, <laughs> as of SNL fame. That's right, and he had the long hair. He was the first baseball player to bring a blow dryer for his hair into a locker room, and he was kind of the Joe Namath a little bit of baseball. He was very Broadway Joe. Uh, <laughs> And this picture I have of him is when he was with the Yankees in maybe 1964, 65, it's autographed and his hair is very trimmed closely. It doesn't look like the Joe Pepitone I remember. So just, I, I should, I need to admit that I just messed up here. I was thinking Joe Piscopo, um, who, who I know, but I do know Joe Pepitone and I believe either his son or grandson went to high school with me, probably his son. Uh, in Long Island? Yeah, on Long Island, yeah. There was a Pipitone. I'm just trying to remember. I don't remember what the what the familial tree was. Um, but, yeah. He's, he's a favorite of Larry David's, apparently. Pepitone. 
Pepitone is a favorite of Larry David's. Oh, there you go. Uh, I came across a number of old uh, ticket stubs, including my first Madison Mallards ticket stub from 2009, which I remember the, the, the game distinctly because I was so impressed with the environment, the game atmosphere, the execution of the promotions. And I, I remember telling Pete, this was long before I, I worked uh, for Big Top. I, I told people that I thought the Mallards were the best run sports team in the state and certainly the best value in the state. Uh, and, and I'm not just saying that uh, for Connor and Vern's sake. Uh, but <laughs> even back then, it was true. The, the Mallards did a great job. I had a ticket stub in there uh, that I posted of what was a Cleveland Indians and Houston Astros game played at Miller Park. And I'm pretty sure that was from the Katrina uh, rescheduled games when they played neutral yep. site. Yeah. Huh. Uh, don't, don't worry about, you know, Connor, we've already had him on our one time. That's it. We're never having him back on. Uh, you know, I've, uh, he, he, you know, was unable to name any current music he was listening to. So that's just, that's enough of that. Well, I'm sure uh, he doesn't listen to this podcast anyway. Well, uh, you know, our, our, <laughs> our general goal is to, you know, have only two people listening to us. Um, and uh, uh, Dan, by the way, uh, you know, Peter was listening to some Bruce beforehand and uh, your Long Island boy, Gary Green, also a fan of, of, uh, of the Bruce, isn't he? Yeah, he's a big Bruce Springsteen fan. He was tweeting at him recently about saying he'd been to like 300 or 400 Bruce Springsteen shows, which um, I, I, you know, I guess as, as someone who's been to almost, you know, 95 fish shows, I guess I have to give that some respect, but um, I was questioning whether uh, our friend Bruce Springsteen would be on board with Union Omaha charging, uh, I believe, one hundred and eight dollars for their for their new kit. Uh, that doesn't seem like uh, working man kind of prices that Bruce Springsteen would agree to for uh, for the new for the new kit from from Union Omaha, which basically is just a white jersey with their their sponsor and logo on it. So um, I certainly wouldn't be dropping one hundred and eight dollars on that. You know, maybe things are going a lot better in uh, in Omaha than than. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they do have Omaha steaks. They do have uh, you know the 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 Oracle of Omaha in Mr. Buffett, but seems yeah. a little pricey for a third division soccer kid. It, it's yeah, it's very white, like Gary Green's teeth. Uh, which is a joke. <laughs> uh, I think we stole from uh, a member of Forward Madison uh, office who prefers to remain nameless. Um, but yes, <laughs> very white, like his teeth. Uh, anything else, Dan, that you want to complain about, you know, this is your moment to, to get something off of your chest, maybe, you know. Well, for those of us that live in the, the greater Madison area, I don't know if Peter got this, but, you know, we were a, a couple of very violent felons broke out of prison in Portage today or early this morning. And we were told to stay inside and lock our doors. And I thought, what the fuck do you think we've been doing for the last five months? <laughs> I don't think... It should have just been keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. um, I didn't feel like I needed to be reminded <laughs> just because there were two guys potentially running around in Madison today. So thank you to public safety, but I'm all set. By the way, I think uh, I'm going to go repo man for you, Peter, here, and I'm going to go deep state. I think nobody broke out of that prison. They were just using this to reinforce the, the social distance. <laughs> 
Keith, will you be outside of the uh, Capitol on April 24th with your AR-15 and your Confederate flag because you don't understand uh, uh, American history or anything? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, dear God, no. Um, first of all, I want, uh, I think we've discussed this on this pod. I want this to go for as long as possible. Um, because I love, I love social distancing. I, I don't like people call me, you know, cause they're like, oh man, this has got me way down. And they're like, Keith, I don't even recognize you anymore. <laughs> it's again, to make a Larry David reference, there's the episode where he trips Shaquille O'Neal and you know, he becomes a pariah in Los Angeles and nobody wants anything to do with him. And he's just never been happier. That is me and social distancing. It's just me and Paisley and we take long walks. You know, I talk to you guys every once in a while, but otherwise, you know, this is, this is, this is my dream. Uh, I'm definitely not trying to get us back to work, you know, in our offices any faster. Other than trying to track down hex nuts, you're pretty much you're pretty much sealed up. I, I am self sufficient. In fact, I may I may have to you know uh, get some more hex nuts just so I can seal myself off even tighter. <laughs> um, that's that's the kind of goal, Peter. I do want you to go back to work though, not because I'm tired of you here, but I think it'd be good for you. Um, though I'm going to miss I, my long conversations with Paul Caligiuri. <laughs> <laughs> Notice he did not mention these. Uh, so. I, I think that's a good point uh, to, to wrap up from uh, this uh, Paul Caligiuri's favorite podcast. We say forwards, not backwards, upwards, not forwards, and always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. On our block, all of the guys call a flamingo cause high A lot of people don't realize what's really going on. They view life as a bunch of unconnected incidents and things. They don't realize that there's this like lattice of coincidence that lays on top of everything. I'll give you an example, show you what I mean. Suppose you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say like plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp out of the blue, no explanation. No point in looking for one either. It's all part of a cosmic unconsciousness. You need a lot of acid, Miller, back in the hippie days? <laughs>